Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern marvels, chronoskimming classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me snickton around the internet on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's an amazing XI4P premiere Friday, and we have a number of incredible titles looking at all sorts of powerful figures that have represented multiple positions within the Marvel Universe. We're going to kick things off with the second issue of Knights of X, Teeny Howard and Bob Quinn's reimagining of the previous volume of Excalibur as sort of like a high adventure D&D otherworld adventure and it's been incredible. We can't wait to bring you that. And then we're going to bring you sort of mixed coverage of two of the stories in Electra Black, White, and Blood number four Powers You Can't Comprehend and Rendezvous alongside the most recent issue of Ben Percy and Corey Smith and Brent Peoples Ghost Rider. So it's going to be a fun XI4P premiere Friday. So let's kick things off right with a trip to Otherworld with Teeny Howard and Bob Quinn's Knights of X number two. Of course, with everything going on in Krakoa, it only makes sense that there would be another side that would be plaguing the mutants. I can't think of too many eras where the mutants haven't had it coming for them from all sides. And one of the things about this exploration of the mystical side of what's going on with mutancy is the revisioning of what mutant magic means, right? This idea that powers are more than one thing, the duality of magic and technology in Eternals, the duality of mutant evolution and magic in the pages of Knights of it's really been a fascinating way to raise the stakes on the idea of protecting the mutant class and the mutant culture. There's so much more to it. It has its own magic, and it's really one of the most special things, and we hope you guys enjoy our coverage as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. And don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, you can always like what you see by subscribing over on Twitter at XIsForPodcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, chronoskimming classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me crashing through Otherworld on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And before we go a second fucking further, it is impossible that Mad Jim would go down like that. Okay, Correct. sorry. I'm TK. You can find me buying knockoff designer handbags at the Crooked Market on Twitter and Instagram at xNateXGrayX. I'm Jake. I am the other 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 omega sentinel you can find me on twitter at at omega sentinel oh mega sentinel and i'm jonah and you can follow me over on twitter and instagram at peak jonah that's p-e-a-k and we hope you survive this experience just like those mutants who are in that hidden bar like it's the prohibition but instead of alcohol being banned it's the x gene I am certain that means we are here to talk about Knights of X number two, Imperative, by Teeny Howard, Bob Quinn, Eric Arseniega, VCs Ariana Mar, with design by Tom Muller, and a beautiful cover by Yannick Paquette with Alejandro Sanchez. Now, just once again, it cracks me up that we have such an incredible interior artist on a title, and they're not getting to do the cover. But at least this time, I need to start with, this is one of my absolute favorite fight sequences covers in a really long time. I mean, I know I came at the Mad Jim scene pretty hard initially in my intro, but this is actually probably my favorite issue 
issue of either Knights or Excalibur combined. This has most of my like favorite hallmarks of this series, and it really starts for me with the cover. I'd love to get your guys' read on what is such a beautifully stylized sort of D&D magic kind of cover. I think that's a really good way to put it, that it's a stylized D&D type of cover. What it was really giving me right from the get-go was like, this is something that you find on the shelves at your local bookstore, and you just look at it and you're like, there's adventure in there. Like, it really does yes. have the feel of a classic, like, either, like, RPG book cover that makes you think that what's in there might be fun to play with, or just, like, a, a like, paperback pulp fantasy novel that you are just like, this looks weird and cool. And it was just a cool, like, aesthetic to play with within the bounds of this whole thing that's happening. Because it is touching on a lot of the tropes that mm-hmm. overlap with things like D&D and magic. But it's its own thing, and obviously we know that. So this is just kind of a great little reference. Yeah, just to kind of build on that, it's like a, a mixing of these genres. You've got your science mutants and you've got your sword and sorcery. You know, if it didn't say Knights of X on the cover, you probably wouldn't know it was an X title except for Gambit being there and recognizable and having the X on his belt. Everyone just looks so natural in the environment and attuned to the environment. Also, I am living for Rachel's haircut. This is the best hair that Rachel's had since she first appeared. And I'm all about Betsy's tunic. It is Captain Britain up and down queen shit. Mm-hmm. And the flowers in her hair as a, as a recurring motif is just lovely. And I like that she she gives really strong woman energy. And the flowers really like add to that femininity and strength as well. To echo some of the points our co-hosts have talked about, I imagine this would be the new adventure going on in D&D, Adventures Through the Crooked Market. And it would give you a whole list of whole magical items and all these different things you can go through. And that's what I appreciate about both the previous Excalibur title and now this title is that because we're in a very completely different setting with a different set of villains, even though they're doing the kind of exact same things over on Earth, I appreciate the change in scenery where this feels like something you're not going to get in any other book. Now, I do think, and I'm not saying that all of the other X titles feel the exact same, because that's absolutely not true. All the different creative teams are working hard to create different experiences and different points of view within the same world and the same people to give you a breadth of knowledge that you can use to experience and enjoy your comic reading. However, Knights of X, I think, takes that to the extreme because we have this whole list of characters that are being sent to other world, a literal other world. And it's nice that we have a title that's not dealing with whether it's the rise of tech, whether it's the interpolitics of the Quiet Council, whether it's becoming a cop or not and dealing with you know space gamblers trying to bet on can or can you not save earth i appreciate that this title is kind of just you know your old D adventure this is just you know you have a very big party uh, 10 is a lot of people to try to wrangle together for one thing after the events of ten of swords other world was kind of left in not to steal iliana's thunder but a weird limbo where nobody really knew exactly what was going on it, like the entirety of other world was very hectic and i kind of like that we have a title tackling that aftermath of a lot of shit is fucked up right now and Merlin being the asshole he is is like I'm coming into power now and it's like oh okay sure Merlin go off king uh, you're not king though that's Arthur I am very fascinated at this continued building of other world and this continued overarching story that we've gotten as we follow this fallout in the aftermath I do have one concern question I don't know if it's ever actually been explained how 
how are people able to understand Bay? Oh, that's her power. One. Yeah, Bay has Bay has like this this note that they project that like is translatable to everyone except Doug. It's a psychic projection. So she's speaking into everybody's mind. Doug can't understand it because it's not actually a language. It's like her actual power is what's coming out of her mouth. When Bay was introduced, I might have just been a little confused. From what I interpreted as Bay's power being her voice, she is not understandable and that was what fascinated her to Doug so much is that she has this power of a language that nobody can understand I think it's delivery system not language yeah that's exactly it it's kind of the inversion of Cypher insofar as she can make herself understood to everyone except for Cypher, where he can understand everyone except for her. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think that confusion belies something else that you said a bit earlier, Jonah. There's a lot of characters in this book, and there have been a lot of characters running around this book. And, you know, this harkens back to something that has come up a bit here and there on our show. I feel as though right now in the X office, as do a number of our contributors, Jake, I know you and I were mentioning it earlier, there is sort of a vibe that a lot of the dialogue is feeling very consistent in title to a single voice or to a smaller multitude of voices, which is in many ways the perspective of the artist to imprint their voice onto their title. It's one of the things that makes each writer unique. But I do find that frequently those don't always work with one another. Now, my theory for it is something that we've branded sort of Rockstar Comics, which is at some point, Neil Gaiman just became so unique for his voice that it almost became like a rock star. He became like the biggest name in comics. And every time you hear Neil Gaiman, you recognize it. It's like a guitar riff. And that has meant that in many ways, since 1996, many writers are attempting their rock star moment in terms of their guitar riff voice. It's not hard to see connections between Gaiman's work where he has the deification of Days of the Week in one short story met with the deification of Concepts in another. Let's not forget that the dreaming exists in Sandman and of course there's the limitlessness of the dreaming Celestial in his Eternals. So it's connective tissue that each writer has but it's definitely becoming hard to miss in the X books and I would love to get a round table perspective on how everybody feels about the dialogue and how it's shaping the X world when it sometimes feels so distinct. Well, you know, every writer obviously brings their own stuff to the table and has their own takes on the character. You know, I think that looking at someone like Grant Morrison, they really kind of redefined what Emma Frost was about. There are other excellent examples as well. But for me, that that one really stands out because there was an Emma Frost before then who was cool and really self-possessed and had a lot of power and a lot of plots. But then there was Emma Frost after that who was one of the X-Men and still really cool and had a lot of power and had a lot of plots and was kind of mean. And... I think, you know, what I've really been interested in this era has been seeing how someone like Teeny Howard is trying to redefine Betsy Braddock in this new era where she is, you know, in her original body again, apart from Conan, apart from Psylocke. You know, Rachel building that relationship and building off of 
old story beats, but trying to capture a new kind of voice. I think these writers are really trying to take some of their favorite characters and move them forward. And I don't really know what the discourse at the time was for New X-Men. I don't know if there were detractors to the turns that Emma Frost had, but you know, I see that as a point of comparison, except it's happening a lot more frequently now because the books are a lot more popular, because there's a lot more of them, and because there are a lot of bigger names going to them. It's interesting, the idea of the rock starification of the artist on comic books. You know, Nico, the first thing I think about is the work that we've been doing on MC2 and Spider-Girl, because in that you have Tom DeFalco, who is the ultimate company man, the ultimate Marvel house style writer who you can put onto a book and know it will get done and will feature the necessary hallmarks of whatever the title is. And, you know, Claremont was another really interesting case because he's also a company man through and through, but he was a total weirdo. So it's like if you have DeFalco on one end of the spectrum and somebody like Gaiman at the far other end who's like not a company man at all, entirely his own person with his own ideas and his own agendas when he writes, you've got somebody like Claremont in the middle who's got a lot of his own agenda, but is a company man turning out the books. And it's just a very interesting time because I don't think we see as many writers that we recognize who are that same company man type, you know, who are just there to do what needs to get done to get books published. I think we see a lot of unique voices and people who have a presence outside of their writing for comics that fans really respond to. And, you know, you get these writers on and the first question is like, oh, I wonder how they feel about this character. Like this character kind of seems like somebody that they would really enjoy from the writing that they've done in the past or like their novels or short stories that I've read. So I'd love to see them get a hold of that character. It can be really fun and it's an interesting kind of fandom fantasy football that we all get to play of like who's going to be on the team in the story and then who's going to be on the team that writes the story and what magic might that bring about. You get stuff I think that is unique and special and because there is a strong authoritative you know maybe I don't say this like it's a bad thing but somewhat self-serving because they've got a career to do they want to put their mark on a book they've got a strong voice because of that they're going to make some bold choices some not house house style choices and I think we find fans a lot of time get very vocal about the choices that they really don't like or don't agree with or don't want for whatever reason but I find myself more and more just being interested in going with the flow of even the stuff that I don't like or I could make arguments for that like qualitatively I don't think is as good because I do love seeing the strong voices and I should say this is not one of the ones that I I don't think that I love this story I love the the writing in it and the dialogue I do definitely see a lot of people who it's not for them and I get that but I'm really happy to see somebody making really strong choices and moving the story forward regardless of whether or not it's the way that I would want to see it done oftentimes on this show I often talk about the art and art being defined as any sort of medium that elicits a reaction of some kind and that is the loosest most broadest definition you can define as art and under that you can probably find a bunch of funny things that we would call art and that just makes me laugh but everything about comics there are multiple different art forms going into this outside of what you would normally think I think when people think art they think of either like a painted medium or a physically drawn medium something along those lines but writing is a form of art dialoguing is a form of art you know compiling everything together you can argue is a form of art everything is a form of art and art will and always will be subjective nothing about art is tried and true everybody's going to have a different take and everybody's going to have a different reaction to whatever art you put 
in front of them, even if it's the exact same piece, you might get 30 different responses from 30 different people. I hear when people say that they, the dialogue has been weird. That I am somebody who, when I started my comics journey, I started way back with the Claremontian era, and I started with Giant Size X-Men number one, and read, you know, a large handful of issues until we came to a stop to start covering the more modern stuff that was getting this hype and excitement over back in the summer when House of X, Powers of Ten started. And it's really almost cultural whiplash to see the evolution of how comic writing and how different writers will tackle the same characters many moons later. There have been hits for me and there have been misses for me from every single title. There have been plenty of titles that I've been really enjoying. There are plenty of titles that I didn't enjoy. And dialogue, I think, is probably one of the more harder things to do. Now, a lot of my writing knowledge and a lot of things that I've written is a lot more novelization kind of stuff, short stories, things where you could spend a lot of time focusing a lot on details and you can, you know, expand and flex your skills in a way that really helps paint that picture because that's what you have to do when you're not accompanied by a visual medium. And comics writing is so fascinating to me because your writing isn't what is being interpreted in terms of the art because somebody else is drawing that for you. You're looking at somebody else's art accompanied with the text you're providing to give context to a scene or the dialogue that matches what these characters are saying. When it comes to dialogue specifically, dialogue is a fascinating beast because I think everybody has a different style of how they specifically talk and how they see different characters talking. And it's something often that we talk about on the show with different comics is, did this writer get the character's voice right? And sometimes we either really like how they interpret a character and sometimes it's not for us when we read how a particular writer has interpreted a character. Not to say that people can't complain, because I never want to say that, but there are times where I do think, I don't know if a lot of people complaining understand the actual how actually hard it is to write anything. And comics especially, when these are characters that are, it's not your own work, you're working for whatever major company or big company or even small company, where you have a, a character that's already pre-established and you kind of have to stick to a certain style of how a character reacts, because if you start changing too much, then you're not writing the same character, and that's a bigger problem than just making a hot take or making a bold decision. I think I'm more on the side of, I'd rather see these artists and writers continue to make more bolder choices and keep trying to push the envelope and push the narrative and push their story, as opposed to kind of playing it safe, because after a certain point, you look at the X-Men, who have been around for over, what, 50 years at this point? Push the envelope. Keep pushing, because there's only so much more you can do that's already been done without it just feeling like you're bearing repeating or you're just playing the greatest hits. I'd rather see the pushing of the envelope more than people just playing it safe. Because like, what are we doing here if we're playing it safe? If you're not here to win, why join the competition? And I think one of the other things to consider is that penciling also deeply affects dialogue. You can write whatever dialogue you want, but the second it becomes a matter of does that fit in the panel or not, you have to change what you wrote. It no longer matters. It has to fit because the panel is the limitation. So with that in mind, sometimes even great dialogue needs to change to best accommodate the amount of space that you have on the page. So one of the things about this book that automatically pulls me in is that it's using characters that I super duper famously love. And while, like I said, most of this issue really works for me, this opening sequence kind of throws me off. I have a really hard time imagining Mad Jim going down like this. I mean, my headcanon for it was the Fury snuck 
up on him really quick. The collar is a power dampening collar and it just wrong place, wrong time for Jim. And he just got caught unawares. I also don't think mutants, uh, which breed can use their abilities in Merlin's chamber. That's that could also opinion. be true. I really only know Mad Jim Jaspers from when he was first introduced and he was very mad and how he got his name was he was kind of like the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. That's how I imagine his voice is. And he constantly is just talking about tea time and, you know, happy on birthdays. <laughs> he is extremely powerful. Probably much more powerful than a whole bevy and handful of Omega level mutants. And it is a little weird to see him go down so quickly. I also have a weird question. Why did Merlin send him back to the Crooked Market? Like, why not keep him captured somewhere else? Like, it feels weird that he was being held captive in his own domain. And in a jester hat, too. Yeah, did Merlin put that outfit on himself? Like, did they strip <laughs> match him down and put him in this jester outfit? This is like when Emma Frost was first introduced and for some reason stripped all the X-Men down naked and put them in cages. <laughs> I had canon on this one. I'm going for maybe it was a lore for the knights. That's fair. That That is very fair. I do like the note when he does show up again in that jester outfit. The Fury says, James Jasper's reality all, reality none, anomaly. Because he's one of those complicated, like, we've seen so many different iterations of him that it's kind of hard to keep track which one would be, like, the 616 version. So they're kind of tossing that out and just hand saying, like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. This is, yes, sure, this can be the same one who did the Jasper's warp. Yes, this can be the same one who prosecuted at Magneto in Trial of Magneto. Yes, the first one. I appreciate that easy build, that easy integration for the for a character who otherwise would be really kind of a pain to pick apart. Yeah, he's a villain that I think is so spectacular that he's best not used. You know, <laughs> it's like there's some characters that are just so good and so powerful and so fucking scary that the more you use them, the less effective they become. And I think, you know, we talked about it for this book in particular, the idea that there's so many characters characters there's a lot to pack into every issue there's also like just broadly in the Krakoan era there's a thing happening now where and I noticed it in this issue with Gambit like the idea that Gambit has this whole relationship with an interest in the crooked market because of course a thief would makes so much sense and is a really cool idea and I love that for Gambit it's almost to the point now where I've never in my life wanted to see a Gambit story there's never been a Gambit story where I'm like I need that. I want to know about Gambit's life. But now I'm kind of like that. Like now there's enough happening in the stuff in X-Men with like how he knows Rocket and maybe like the space version of the Crooked Market on Game World. Like there's a lot of interesting stuff for Gambit and I don't really see any way we're getting a Gambit story anytime soon. But now I kind of want one because Krakoa keeps opening up not just possibilities for characters, but kind of being like, hey, they have such big lives now and there's so much going on for their culture that they're actually doing a ton of stuff that you're not seeing on page and while that idea is really cool at at first it's getting to a point where I now like want all of these stories because when somebody just pops in and is like hey I have this whole other life and this is just the slice of it that you're seeing it sometimes gets a little tough to really hook in and want to follow whatever that thing is because it's like no I'm 
missed all the stuff that they were doing off panel that I kind of want to know about. And I feel like Jim Jaspers is another one of those characters where it's just like there's so much that could be said and we're just taking this one thing for granted because it is necessary for the story of this book. And one of the things about, I mean, number one, before I forget, Claremont is doing an upcoming Gambit title. So, you know, yeah, Gambit is doing uh, like a 12 issue Gambit Maxi. Present day or we don't probably don't know. We don't really have a lot of details. They started talking about it. Yeah, Yeah, they started talking about it just before the production slowdown with the paper shortage. And they talked about this just before all that. And now it hasn't been mentioned in a while, but you might just get your wish. You might get a lot more Gambit and (laughs) it's probably going to involve a lot more old school Gambit stories because Claremont is a writer who really likes to find the future and digging into a character's past. So this is not what I was talking about, but (laughs) interesting, very funny that I was like, what about Gambit? And like, this is now it's exactly what I said, but not what I want. Um, Okay. Paige Guthrie. What is she up to? No. (laughs) Well, you know, you make it, you make a good point about Gambit and like the way these characters are being juggled, we're getting some nice meaty proportional character development. You know, you get Gambit having these relationships and these stories that we're not really seeing and this, this development of his powers as he's using this tarot deck that he got in Ten of Swords, which I love, by the way, I love these new flourishes for him. You've got the rebutting relationship between Richard and Shatterstar. You've got whatever's going on with Kailun and Mordred. You've got Mordred who did an Otherworld resurrection, so we don't even know what we've got from him. And it's all just sort of being doled out to a point where I'm like, I want to, I want everyone to develop. I want to see everyone's next beat in the next issue. It's so meaty. I'm really interested and hooked in these stories about these characters. I think visually one of the best things that the Dawn of X, Destiny of X, you know, I don't know, fashion show of X, whatever the fuck era we're in has ever given us is on digital page four, that Phoenix, Psylocke combo, Siege Perilous, Magic Aura thing is the gift that is going to keep on giving in my mind forever. That looks so cool. It looks so good. Bob Quinn and Eric Arseniega really bring out some beautiful elements of each other's art and you know that sequence could be silly one of the things we see is a literal goose version of Betsy and she's just part of a magic circle because you know what because why the pluck not she is a thousand percent that goose I also love Jubilee just pushing Professor X out of the way to yell at the Siege Perilous apparition in front of them like you have to speak to it directionally there are some great beats in this book that are funny and silly on one hand and yet when you're in the moment you don't look at them that way you're just kind of enjoying it it's only when you take a step back that you're like that's ridiculous and awesome Xavier falls to the ground and says Jubilee is a jerk help I've fallen and I can't get up he pushes his life alert his and life it's alert just Magneto. on his helmet yeah it's just I'm coming Charles things he also said probably the pre- previous night warm <gasps> <laughs> All right, so you brought up Jubilee. Let's talk about her. I think it is interesting how much time Jubilee spends as a mom in jeopardy. Like, I feel like we don't really see Jubilee be a mom. I feel like we see Jubilee talk about how she was supposed to get to be a mom now and really doesn't get to. Unfortunately, I have to agree with you, especially, you know, most of my 
interpretation and readings of Jubilee come from the more modern era because I haven't gotten to the point where she was introduced to the X-Men yet, but it kind of just feels like Jubilee isn't really allowed to do much because she has to worry about Shogo constantly. I will say, though, in the Marvel Voices Asian and Pacific Islander heritage issue that came out, a really great Jubilee story where she, Shogo, and Jono share a really beautiful picnic together. It's really unfortunate that that was in a like a co- only a couple pages in a non-major issue, as opposed to being in a place where more people would be more likely to see it, which is unfortunate to say. I agree. It's one of the things I've loved about how many miniseries have made their Marvel Voices story a requirement for reading, the way one of the Shang-Chi stories intersected kind of sort of with his miniseries, the same with Phoenix Echo Fire mini song series Echo Fire song Phoenix. Does anybody know the name of that fucking book? Phoenix Song uh, Phoenix Echo. Song it's not Echo. that hard. Song Echo. Speaking of echoing, Jonah, I want to echo love for that particular story. That was from last year's AAPI book, and it was written by Christina Strain, who also wrote the second volume of Generation X, which was a very Jubilee-heavy book. Oh, that was the story drawn by Jason Lowe. Yeah, we talked about it. Mm -hmm. It's following up on a lot of really great Jubilee development that happens in that series where she does kind of agonize over motherhood, yes, but also becomes a mentor to students, starts developing her first adult relationship. You know, you get all of this agency and interiority. And unfortunately, Jubilee just doesn't get that kind of attention in Excalibur or so far in Knights of X. And I I believe they're saving her for another miniseries. Yeah, Exterminators. So maybe that is why she's taking such a backseat here but there's been growth for jubilee that i feel like we've backpedaled on somewhat in the last couple of years i would love jubilee and maybe gene doing a parenting class like i mean there's a whole bunch of babies just kind of i don't know i don't say floating around some of them might be floating depending on the mutant powers but there's a lot of babies and you know i imagine there might be a lot of new adoptive parents on krakoa and you know why not have them host like a, a you know a parenting class i imagine it's new for a lot of people do you want your child to be kidnapped these two women can show you how or lost in another dimension or in the future i mean <laughs> everyone has lost their babies in the x-men they're either time lost or dimension lost well that's not my problem <laughs> speaking of time and dimension lost babies very few appearances of kylan really factor into the characters so much he disappears as a little boy goes to another dimension turns you know his mutant power gestates he becomes uh, rather her suit and trains with weapons and we get a moment on page eight of the digital where he says beast you dare and i just really expect mordred to say don't you talk about my husband like that is just this side of the beast how dare you meme and i love this moment as a diehard eileen davis fan i have to agree i'm a big days of our lives Ooh. person i'm just kind of losing my head i'm with you i'm with you it's a great moment and it's adorable. But TK, how's your head? Lots of complaints. I'm a mess. Very sloppy. Very sloppy. I like that this page also confirms that Amazing Baby has made the journey into Otherworld as well, because I would hate for them to be without their mom. Yeah, I never expected to be like, Warwolf, Warwolf, give me the baby. But, you know, and it's funny because I forget which editor tweeted in six months, everyone's going to be like, Baby Yoda who? And I'm like, er, 
sorry guys it didn't it didn't quite eclipse baby yoda like that <laughs> but part of the magic of a perfect ex pet or a perfect like little magic baby ex goblin is the capturing sort of a playful spirit you know that's what we love about lockheed that's what we love about bamfs that's what we love about jeff, jeff the, the land shark exactly <laughs> you know it's not that amazing baby isn't interesting yet but i feel like in a title that is so packed to the brim there's barely room for every one of these characters some of who i thought were guest stars in this book but now that this book is a miniseries i'm like who even knows such that i wish that i wish i got to know amazing baby better but just barely in the book that is a symptom of a larger concern when we were talking about the large cast of characters specifically meant to be going on this mission none of that includes any of these more secondary characters that are playing a role in this story whether you're looking at the antagonists like Mar- uh, I almost called him Marlin nope Merlin or Arthur or a supporting character like Lady Roma there's a lot of characters where I'm going to get concerned not enough panel time will be attributed to everybody where we can see where their character is going to go it's why you know you'll see a lot more team books and a lot more party sizes be shrunk down to um, smaller numbers to not only allow for this story these characters to bond in a way different than they've bonded before because they are in a new setting and they are facing new challenges it also allows for character growth that doesn't feel rushed because you have a little bit more time to develop each individual character but we have 10 people here and we also have a new character in Mordred that we have to get a lot of characterization in so we the audience can understand you know who is Mordred like I don't say that's just the biggest question who is Mordred because he doesn't talk a lot and then there's other bad guys too yeah you're absolutely right the problem is we just like X fans have had so many hits over the past 60 years just so many great characters and we're all insane even the bad ones we just (laughs) fall in love with and get obsessed with and write fanfic about and just dream about the day that we will get to write the story of the Mondo clone not the original Mondo I only care about the Mondo clone and that's my whole world we're just we love way too many of these characters and there have been so many and for years we were dealing with this really slimmed down version of the mutants where we could not possibly dream of any of our favorites coming back and now we've had this explosion where even if they were producing another dozen books there would still be characters where we would be like okay but what's this guy up to and when's he coming back where's my micro max solo series (laughs) it's awesome we're all having so much fun but there will inevitably never be enough books to get all the character development that this fandom would want out of the characters that we are now able to imagine reasonably coming into any particular story. I think that's so true and they're definitely trying to have like a digital book like Unlimited do some of that lifting and show us but it's still one book and it can only show so much even if it's if it's trying to give us a constellation of smaller stories. There's always going to be a sense that like there's never enough because there's so many great characters that are now present again and, and on the board for storytelling. 
Yeah, I mean, I would kill for four or five X-related unlimited book, you know, like an Iraqi one, an Otherworld one. A webcomic even. I'd, I'd, like a canon webcomic could be a really interesting experiment for like Kirk Cohen storytelling. For sure. And that's how you wind up with issues that have Megan in them and not Brian, which is outside of like a run of eight Excalibur issues in the middle there. That's weird. Like not in a bad way. You know, big Megan fan thinks she's such a spectacular character. But this notion that that's the kind of position she's in to flourish is so new and it's spectacular. I'm here for it and I'm excited, but it definitely is kind of an adjustment because there's ways in which I ask myself, is this iteration of Megan really Megan? Who is she without Brian when like literally her character originally exists as a reflection of Brian's love for her? So like she's literally just that Brian loves her for several years and it leads me to a really excited place because like I like seeing that Megan wants to comfort Gambit and you know what Megan is touchy she would comfort Gambit like that and Gambit's touchy Gambit would like to be comforted like that and seeing these characters come into their own and on every other panel is Richter and Star thinking about who's going to be on top it's just the most amazing experience to get to celebrate this wealth of characters so I think this book also has a plot but you know <laughs> We're having a whole lot of trouble getting to it, in part because something that I've noticed about Knights of X, it doesn't really have like issue summaries. Like, I don't feel like I can, as was said earlier, I don't think I can say like what happened in this issue. I think I can tell you the number of short stories that they sort of pieced together in a big way. But that makes it occasionally difficult to speak about the overall, this is what happened in this issue in a clean, crisp way. And I think that's kind of the hallmark of a book that challenges the norm of the X-verse. And I wanted to get everybody's opinion on the sort of format of the storytelling here. We know this is a quest, so it's almost as though it's working in cutscenes or FMVs. I just keep thinking that I'm going to have to fight a mini boss to get to the next one. Yeah, I think cutscenes is a really good way of looking at it. We have this quest and occasionally the details of how we're getting from point A to point Z get a little bit lost for me just in terms of remembering like why are they there why are they going to the crooked market why'd they split up but generally within the reading of the issue you know it all comes together pretty holistically you get every time you kind of have to reintegrate and remember what everybody's doing and what their purpose is but we're always moving forward we're everybody's always driving towards goals there's not a lot of wheel spinning like even in the moments where they sneak into the prohibition era <laughs> crooked market underground and gambit brings everybody's snacks. You have that cute little moment with Megan lauding Gambit for his kindness and sort of being a stand-in work wife for him. And it's very sweet, but it's not really like a whole diversion from the plot beats that we're getting to every issue where we got to go from here to there to there. It's a good balance in this book. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I'm not really super engrossed in what the those plot details are. It's just kind of the general idea of like mutants are in trouble in other world, which breed are in trouble in other world, and they've got to figure out how to get Saturnine back on the throne, or at least depose Merlin. Like, those are the two big beats, and where we go issue to issue, I'm just kind of along for the ride. Yeah, these, this still feels very much like early days for this story. Like, it's, um, like, we're doing a lot of scene setting, um, and, and you know, I know we've we've done a lot of other worlds since Ten of Swords and Excalibur, but there's still more to build. It's other world under Merlin now. So we're seeing things like a Viscora incursion into Blightspoke. We're seeing, like, a need to 
go into Sevalith and deal with the vampires, the gathering of allies. They're going to see Death, one of the original horsemen. There's still a lot of like, to me, what I'm seeing is still a lot of scene setting. Like, how is Otherworld right now before we're going to get to the meat of the like the big swing plot beats? While this doesn't feel like it's moving a ton forward, it does give me a greater sense of what's going on in the world and what they're reacting to, which kind of gives me a sense of what direction that we're going to be going in for, which is we're going to continue to see conflicts in the different realms and how the teams are reacting to them, protecting which breed, and I guess eventually we'll see a next major beat develop from that. Now, I don't mean to play favorites here on Exus for Podcast, but we have been lucky enough to have some incredible voices come through our studio an absurd number of times, and we count them as our friends here. Uh, You know, vaunted, respected friends that we respect the boundaries of, but we certainly count them amongst our favorite people. And the work done by, of course, the incredible art team on all fronts. But like Bob Quinn is somebody that we study as an artist here, like a little in depth. And I really think that this is some of his most challenging work to date. There's something about the way he plays with the subtlety of creating facial work. He oftentimes recesses characters into the background in a thoughtful way, reflecting a minimalism in the art you know comics are usually drawn at board size which is like two and a half times the size of the book and then you shrink it down and that sometimes means detail work gets lost but between bob quinn's exquisite penciling and inking combination eric arseniega's subtle and detailed expression of color and variance through shading and really upscaling that flatting to new levels with highlight work and then ariana mars masterful method of making way too many letters on every panel look exactly right. This is one of the most beautiful books you can buy. And Bob Quinn, I, you know, I mentioned to him during the interview that he has become one of those artists who I look to to set an aesthetic standard for characters and feel overall for, for an era, essentially. Like he's somebody who, when he picks how a character like Richter or Gambit or Betsy or Roma is going to be depicted in his story, that's going to be one of the ways I think of them iconically going forward. And it's going to kind of be a huge contributor to the amalgam character that's in my head when I think about them. And I think this book is just such a fascinating example of that because everybody is in this semi-Arthurian fantasy era regalia and you're getting different aspects of characters than we've ever seen before. So stylistically, you have to both call back to the core of the character and give us something really new. And he's doing an incredible job of it. I think the face work on characters like Betsy and Roma when they're meeting and discussing Shogo just really is next level and makes me more excited to get to know these characters than I have been previously. I am such a big fan of the way that the entire creative team comes together for things, but every time I get to see Bob's art, it just makes me happy. It makes me giddy. I know I'm in for a good time. Something I I appreciate about Bob's work is that he loves being able to have some like little quippy funny moments like when he gets to you know kind of just design characters that are meant to you're not really meant to see again or or only in that one particular panel it always makes me happy I like him back to the way of X where that one Iraqi was mooning the moon and you just think like Bob just kind of gets it as we find ourselves winding down on this episode of Knights of X I find myself fascinated by how little we discussed that I feel 
was textually on the page, but how much more this book made us think. And I think the cerebral nature of this book is such a tribute to what it's meant to be. This really is a hallmark title in the classic form of Excalibur by Chris Claremont. And I'm a big fan of giving a book a chance to decide if it's a monthly or if it's a, no, read the omnibus. And I think some time ago, Excalibur made the decision that, you know, it's an omnibus. But we as readers then need to watch this book grow. You know, you can see the framework of the adult that a a baby book is going to grow into. You know what I mean? You can see the framework of where that character arc is likely going to go when it's fully developed. But it's until that facial structure, that like topography of what the look of the book will be. It's really hard to understand the Omni relationship to the monthly relationship. And for me, this is a book that I think is going to read back even better than it read monthly. What do you guys think? Do you guys think this is going to stand the test of time at the same quality? Or do you guys think that a reflective read may transform the work? I think this will probably be better as a reflective read. So something I have been thinking about more and having constant fascination with is about binge watching in the sense that binge watching has forever changed the way we consumed media and there can be merits to the older system of having to wait to find out what's going to happen next week versus being able to have everything with you so you can watch or read everything all at once and get the bigger picture. I do think this title might read a little bit better when we have everything because I think that'll help us understand the method to the madness if you will of why we took detours into certain places you know we haven't really talked about this issue and that part of that is they haven't really started their quest yet they're kind of doing some side missions of doing different things of they decided well the stone can wait we specifically yeah. are going to find some allies in different places first because that's what we need it's like getting Yuffie and Vincent before continuing on I'm just like yes this is you guys are you're, you're side questing guys and that's absolutely fine they can side quests if they need to. I do think then that if that's where we're going to focus and this journey isn't going to be straightforward, but similar to how Ten of Swords was in a straightforward tournament, I do think this will read a lot better when we have everything all together so that we can really understand that maybe the journey isn't exactly what we think it is. Similar to how Betsy wants Shogo to be trained by Lady Roma because she understands his journey might not be the same as their own and they don't want to do too much of a literal interpretation. For me, I do think this will read better in trade or omnibus form. It's not reading poorly now. I feel like part of it even is in the presentation and the pomp and circumstance of this somewhat self-contained other world story that has really important implications for the greater Krakoan storyline that's happening, but is really its own kind of shining jewel that you go into a separate room to take out and admire. And whatever the ramifications are you might see them in other books but for this story having it in one maybe two contained volumes where we really get to absorb all of the little details about other world and about the characters and about the plot and the mission and put together the puzzle pieces in a much more contained fashion I think is going to really serve to let us just take in that whole picture of the other world adventure and not necessarily have to guess so much or juggle all of these characters and all of these places and all of this history 
and the kind of retcons that have come with it as well. I just want to throw in that I think this is some of the best Rachel Summers characterization that we've ever gotten ever on the page. I love this Rachel. I love that she feels like the arrival of this person who has been coming all this time. We've been growing towards this character all this time who is self-possessed and assured and connecting with other people and is finally ready to take on the mantle of Ascani. And what a relief that for once she's self-possessed and not possessed. Hey everybody, Nico here again. And I'm TK. And so, all right, we've been covering so much Electra and so much Ghost Rider, and it's been such a fascinating experience for me because I have grown up with these characters at the same level that like the X-Men were to me. And to find out that other people who love the Marvel Universe really similar ways I do didn't grow up with these characters, and especially someone whose taste I so respect and has like, you know, really come to influence my own in these last few months. You know, I've really loved connecting with these characters with you, TK. And I with you. They're all people that I have been very aware of and had respect for. And that's, I think, the big difference. I have always known who Daredevil and Elektra were from the same time that I knew who the X-Men were. I was very aware of Man Without Fear with those gorgeous John Romita Jr. covers that were coming out around the same time as I was discovering his work in X-Men. So these were all characters that I knew and really respected, but I was in it for the mutant stories. And I I didn't follow a lot of other stuff. And so while there was a lot that I was aware of, it was never anything that I was delving into unless it was somehow connected to the X-Men. And it's been really a privilege to connect with somebody who has such a passion for other corners of the Marvel Universe such that I can translate that respect into genuine understanding and sort of falling in love with all of the characters. And Elektra really has been top of that list. I have so completely enjoyed immersing ourselves in the massive wave of Electra. Many people have caught that Electra became Daredevil in the pages of Zdarsky and Chichetto's masterful Daredevil run, and throughout the course of the last year or so, we've seen an incredible rise in the number of Electra projects in the form of Daredevil, The Woman Without Fear 1 through 3, Electra Black, White, and Blood numbers 1 through 4, as well as Electra number 100. We've also seen her appear in the pages of Savage Avengers, as well as throughout much of the Devil's Reign event, and each time she shows up, there's always some sort of like, oh shit, I never thought about it that way. Kind of touch on things now that she's got that incredible past with Emma Frost. She has the brilliant, I mean, we dissected it to death, her past with Typhoid Mary. (laughs) And now Ghostwriter shows up here in the pages of Electra Black, White, and Blood. And Was this maybe this is, one too many? This was this was the first one that didn't rock my socks. Yeah, when I looked at the credits, I was actually really looking forward to this one. The Rosencanny era of X-Men is a controversial one, but I think there is some great writing and ideas in there. It is n- in no way the fault of the author. It's just how editorial panned out and the fact that Krakoa was coming. But I think there are some really good ideas and some really great writing in there. And coming off of the heels of some great great writers taking on this idea that Elektra has always been a huge part of the Marvel Universe, has been a wealthy mover and shaker, as well as somebody with a lot of talent and reason to be a lot of places. Of course, she has connected with characters that you know and has a past with them. And that should be something you're looking for and are open to and are interested in. Given all of that, I was really excited for the idea of Ghost Rider. It just, I think, unfortunately, they can't all be winners. She 
can't have an awesome, interesting story with every single character in the Marvel Universe. And this is not the height of the Electra past that we've been experiencing previously. But of course, we do get an Electra team up in today's coverage that shook me to my core. And we're going to get into the reasons why and how that Rendezvous is an emotional full circle for me. But to mention briefly what we're going to discuss today, we're going to take a look at Electra Black, White, and Blood, number four, stories A and C, Powers You Can't Comprehend by Matthew Rosenberg, Alberto Albuquerque, Proto Bunkers, Fers Fuentes Sujo on colors with Tom Groneman as editor. And then we're going to take a look at Rendezvous by fucking Kevin fucking Eastman. Oh my God. And Freddie E. Williams. We're going to pair that with Ghost Rider, number three, Red Road by Wolverine. I don't know. Is he like the IRL version of Romulus at this point? Because he like so completely controls everything Wolverine does, I guess possibly. Ben Percy with Corey Smith and Brent Peoples on art with Roberto Poggi and Brent Peoples inking. Brian Valenza bringing up all the colors to give the book one consistent vibe with VC's Travis Lanham on editors. It is of note that VC's Joe Caramagna did letters on powers you can't comprehend. And I do want to mention the assassin story by Peach Momoko is an element of the Demon Days universe as per its credits. So we are certainly not skipping that incredible Peach Momoko story, but rather we're going to roll that into our more standard Demon Days style coverage because that is where I think, you know, you have to discuss a story. So, all right, TK, Ghost Rider, man. This is a this is a guy that I've I've kind of a yeah, I've kind of tied you to the back of his bike. It's been an interesting road. Sort of thrown by issue 3 of Ghost Rider and I I like it a lot. One of the things I like a lot is that it gives me preacher vibes. But how are you feeling with this shift back to a more classic feeling of Ghost Rider whereas we're seeing like Electra jump forward? So, I always talk about corners of the Marvel universe and like I said, I've been aware of all of them. I get how they all function. It has all come out of my understanding and love for the X-Men, but if you want to have deep X-Men lore, you have to kind of understand how the magic side of things works, how things in Hell's Kitchen work, how things with the Avengers work. You don't have to know all the background and the history. You don't have to know all the characters and their beats and their backgrounds, but you do have to have a kind of broad knowledge. And then you kind of section things out and you understand you're most likely to see these characters in this part of the Marvel Universe. And sometimes there's a crossover, but I, you know, very aware of Hell's Kitchen, finally got into it, really loving everything about it. Every time we read a new story that could have some effect on Hell's Kitchen, on Daredevil characters, on people like Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, I'm starting to really fall in love with those stories and fall in love with all those characters and see the possibilities. I can't wait for Thunderbolts. That's all great. I'm also learning about this whole demon spirit of vengeance, like slightly horror side of the Marvel Universe that mostly involves the writers. And overall, I really love this corner of the Marvel Universe. There are characters like Robbie Reyes and Kushala, who I would kill to see in books right now, who I just absolutely have fallen in love with the stories that I've read about them. And in those stories, Johnny Blaze appears and is sometimes a really compelling character. Unfortunately, at this point, he's probably the least compelling Ghost Rider, and it is becoming an increasingly tough sell, regardless of how good the writing is and regardless of how passionate a creator might be, that I would follow just another guy unless there's something more to hook me in. And it's a tough thing. You know, I'm not knocking anybody for not giving me the thing to hook me in. It is a really tough challenge, but the hook is not so much there. I don't have the passion for Johnny Blaze that I have for Kushala. I really feel that 
exact same way. It's not that Benjamin Percy, who is, when I compare Ghost Rider number three, Ghost Rider one through three, really, to Preacher, for better or for worse, and however it's aged, in whatever context, I really came to realize a lot of the things I wanted to be and not be in a man through Jesse Custer and Tulip O'Hare. Like, I, I loved that book so much as a kid. And as an adult, I still look back on it with some romantic horror in a lot of ways. I, I don't know. And then when it ends, it's just over. I have so many feels. And like Steve Dillon was like a personal hero. So when I compare something to Preacher and I don't say it's doing a bad Preacher ripoff. No, when I say it feels so Preacher, I'm saying something that while maybe hasn't aged with the greatest grace reflects something that at the time meant a great deal to me. So by comparing Ghost Rider to Preacher, I'm trying to show it some great love. The problem isn't Ben Percy's incredible prose, which is at times dripping with adjectives in a way that I'm challenged by. Like the way he uses language to construct a visual on a page that already has visuals sometimes feels really master of the craft. And the art team is churning out some of the most hardened and yet like, I don't know how else to put it. They make the fire feel mucusy. And like, I think that's what they want. And it's good. It works. It has that vibe. But I just don't care about this man this time anymore. And they've given me so many more compelling ghostwriters. It really isn't a matter of this team isn't doing a good job because then I'm confronted with how fucking incredible we're supposed to think he is in powers you can't comprehend. And I can't get behind that ghostwriter anymore because of where ghostwriter is now after all these years. It just feels disconnected from the spirit of vengeance. Yeah, a guy who was like a stunt bike racer. It just, that's a very of its time character description and through the 90s they were really just sticking with that and trying to kind of tie it to cultures that are recognizable as kind of white Americana middle of the country type of cultures which is all great I mean there's nothing wrong with that there are great characters that are like that but as time has gone on we've expected some more diversity and a lot of characters that are staples have had to kind of fold in some retconned background and interests and and pieces of themselves that are not so tied to the time of their creation and kind of dating them. And it just seems like nobody has been able to do that with Johnny Blaze. And so we get to a point here where it does feel like Percy is kind of making attempts, but because there's such a huge gap between, I think, where Percy wants this character to be and where he has been previously, it's he's not really recognizable, but there's nothing really special about him. There's no kind of thread tying everything together. So it is just kind of a guy and I don't really know what to do with it. And the trappings of this book and the book itself are so much better than Johnny Blaze is serving. Johnny is sort of forgettable and just kind of there. But let's talk about fabulous fucking daddy Alan Moore looking alabaster. Let's talk about how we get these incredible visuals of this of this man creature in Zebediah with these bird wings and his transformation. Like the things about this book that fire, really fire for me. It's that I don't care about the lead character. Yeah. And I am having a lot of trouble with Agents Wilmer and Warwood. I think they do read like Vertigo Cops. And that's like a vibe. That's a vibe. Vertigo Cops is a vibe. And I'm vibing on it. And I'm vibing for it. And I'm vibing with it. It isn't concerned that it's not good. It isn't a decision that I don't... It's just weird. What do these characters have to do with this story yet? It feels like a, like a really slow build building 
book and I'm really excited to look back on it in like six issues because number one, the art is so great. I'm going to read this book 10 times. Like at some point I will look through this art a number of times because I do think the art is spectacular. It is completely its own art. It is uniquely itself, but it does give me a lot of what I like from art like Steve Dillis. And that is something that I think adds a certain quality to this type. The thing that really takes me about it is it's something that I noticed either X lives or X deaths, but it was a really early reference to the Dark Tower that was a blatant reference to the Dark Tower. And I thought it was a really smart move on Percy's part to make this sort of throwaway line, very clear reference to an influence on his writing because it gave him connection to the audience. And it also, if you saw, if if there were any moments where you were like, this looks like the Dark Tower, you would never be like, oh, that guy stole it. Because he already told you he likes it and he's into it. He quoted it very bold-facedly. And for me, what that did for my reading of Percy's writing was I started to notice all of the horror stuff that he was folding into his writing. And it never comes off as copy and paste. It comes off as like somebody who knows the genre and knows how to employ the styles and influences in a way that creates a world that feels like the stuff that he knows we've all been reading if we're into this. I agree. It's the masterful blending of atmospheric horror by understanding creating these sort of foresty scenes gives one vibe and then it's understanding how to project in the sense of I guess what I'll call procedural horror that we see with the agents. He's not giving me a best of, he's giving me a what's what. And that's something that I do appreciate. The pacing on this book is in issue, very smart. When I hit the last page of this one, I was like, oh, that's it? Not like, oh, not enough happened, but like, oh, no, I'm ready to keep going. Like there is an excitement to the title that the the way this book plays with orange, like there is so much orange and black in this book. And that's just really unusual. Like the amount of orange, black, and brown in this book, even in specific choices, like making the roof of the diner orange, putting the diner waitress in orange, having the orange coming out of the truck in the earlier scene. There is a lot of reliance on getting away from blood red when you're not using blood to make blood red feel a little bit more impactful. And it's that mixing of brown and orange that I think conjures specific Halloween vibes when contrasted with things like the sickening gray of the morning in the graveyard scene with the Council of Night Magicians, which, by the way, definitely sounds like my new favorite LARPing band. And I love how much they just really leaned in to the art of inking in all heavy black, this really powerful sense of deep near Vanta black that Roberto Poggi and Brent Peoples channeled throughout this story. I mean, a lot of this book really works for me. It is certainly not a detriment to the team that there are things that just don't fire. Yeah, I mean, I really respect the choice of somebody like Percy, who, as you mentioned, is becoming synonymous with Wolverine, the most popular character in the Marvel Universe, arguably, that he would take a character like Ghost Rider and specifically Johnny Blaze, who is definitely, I think, well, I guess I shouldn't say he's not the most popular Ghost Rider. Who knows who's the most popular Ghost Rider? Ghost Rider's kind of completely up in the air. It's not popular for anybody. It just is there. I really respect that he wanted to take on this character, and I think he really gets the world. It's just, even with a top-tier writer, more work needs to be done around the Ghost Rider corner of the universe to 
make it something that even like readers like us, who I think are really open-minded, can get excited for and integrate into our broader fandom for the Marvel Universe. That broader fandom for the Marvel Universe, for me, has always involved Ghost Rider and Daredevil connecting, going back to when Karen Page was a love interest for Ghost Rider in the late 70s when she temporarily relocated to California while Daredevil wasn't in California. Man, that sometimes you're just like, how did anybody make it out of the 80s in Marvel Alive? You know what I mean? Yeah. So... <laughs> Oh man, the real world had cocaine in the 1980s at Marvel had comic writing plots. So I think the body horror edition of the mouth on the back of Ghost Rider's face is such a specific body horror decision that even when Daredevil does go, you know, oh, he's got a demon in him, everything's sad. You know, it doesn't really go there. And that is one way in which this team sought to reshape this book into a slow slightly more visceral direction. I mean, it does give me, you know, Sam Keith at Vertigo in, in the 80s. And that's, I'm not saying it's derivative. I'm saying it's been so long. It's a signal to classicism and retro respect. It doesn't feel out of place. And it does help give me excitement for some new places for Johnny in the future. Yeah. The reason why I mentioned that like more work had to be done to kind of shore everything else up. I have a lot of hope and it makes me excited that somebody like Percy is interested in writing this and is writing this well. My real fear is that this isn't going to take off because it's just it's not clear who it's for and there's not a lot of muscle behind it and so my excitement is cautious and reserved because I have a tough time seeing this getting even the 12 issues let alone like the 24 that I might want it to have and then to start bringing in characters like Kushala like Robbie Reyes and to sort of plant a flag to give the Ghost Rider side of things the same treatment that like you know the Eternals are getting right now with just a gorgeous 12 issue series and some one shots I'd love to see that for Ghost Rider the property it doesn't just have to be Johnny but I am not seeing the same enthusiasm at Marvel for this property as I do for Eternals and you know we can probably guess a lot of the reasons why and in that regard you know that really is part of where I struggle with the contrast between this idea of Ghost Rider and the sort of vaunted classic Ghost Rider that appears in the pages of Electra Black, White, and Blood number four. It's so hard for me to see how they've elevated Electra to this position of, you know, certainly not like all powerful, unstoppable queen or anything, but definitely she's taken a position of respect and authority. And I feel feel like she is treated rather mutably in this Ghost Rider story. I mean, I think that kind of becomes a part of Electra's character that every writer has to reckon with how they're going to deal with the fact that at a certain level, she is an assassin for hire. She is somebody that organizations and people like to look at as a tool, as something that they can point in a direction and make do a thing. It's the most fascinating part of Electra 
Electra is her breaking out of that narrative really seamlessly and then growing from it and sort of putting it behind. The question is, can you as a writer figure out how to reference it in a way that says this is where she came from, but that doesn't sort of bog her down with it or, you know, maybe give you the impression that she's falling back to that, like, oh, she's all the way back to square one again and she's got to grow out. A really good example is Anne Nascenti's story from Black, White, and Blood, where she just, from page one, is like, okay, I'm in an asylum and I'm leaving. She's been laid low, but she's perfectly fine and capable. And this is a story where Wilson is very much treating her like a tool, like an employee, and it's plausible, you know, timing-wise in terms of what it's telling us about where she is in her journey. It's believable. It's just not for right now. I don't think it's where I particularly want to see her. And so it's something that's okay to reference, but I think really digging into like this part is maybe not my favorite perspective on her for a story. Because my question is, who's meant to learn the most here? Is it Electra, who's learning about how there are mystical forces she can't control in the form of Zarathos and the demon of Ghost Rider? Are you telling me that a woman who has already been trained by the hand is being schooled on demons? I don't think so. Yeah, that was really my first complaint too. So then who is this meant to be a learning lesson for? Electra or Kingpin? So now this is a lesson for Kingpin. So if this is a lesson for Kingpin, it's a lesson for Kingpin where Electra gets defeated for no reason and then her great feat of success killing the Kingpin's men off panel is so underwhelming that you almost don't get a sense that she did defeat them. You could almost contextualize it as she just gets away. Not that you would, not that you should, but you could because it's so clearly unstated. I'm a big fan of this creative team in general and the sequential storytelling itself does work. It is beautiful and it is well put together. I just don't know that there's a value in this being an Electra story here. And I think the point about whose lesson is this, if it is the Kingpins, there would have been something, this might have elevated the encounter between Ghost Rider and Electra, putting Ghost Rider face to face with Kingpin and having her be like, you should be aware that people like this exist and I team up with them. Like, don't fuck with either of us. But when you put me against this person, I figured out how to make them an ally and you always need to be on your guard. There's something there that our takeaway from this is that these two have had an encounter and there was just an encounter one time. There's not anything where we could ever see them on page again and be like, oh, they're friends or something or this be something that we were excited to reference, you know, have Ghost Rider show up in Hell's Kitchen for some reason and have them like take on the Kingpin one more time. There's just not really a lot to carry away from this. And I think one of the things I have loved about a lot of these stories, I think the ones that are most successful is that they give you either a continuity touchstone like Typhoid Mary being in the asylum with Electra, or they give you a perspective touchstone, which I think the second story we're going to cover really does. And it lets you walk away from reading in depth about this character with a really multifaceted understanding. And I just don't know that this contributed to a multifaceted understanding of Electra, other than she did have an oppositional encounter with Ghost Rider one time. Because your point about I can't imagine them referencing it really rings true. The thing that we literally howled into the night about was that the story from Electra Black, White, and Blood 2 with Typhoid Mary got referenced in Electra 100, and the synergy was incredible. The storytelling perspective was beautiful. There was a real connective drive there. I just don't see anybody quickly bringing this up because the maybe big thing you could take from it for Electra is that immediately following the penance stare, where he says, 
the penance stare will show you all of the pain you have ever caused in this world. Within minutes, she's ready to kill again. Maybe that's part of the lesson we're supposed to take in like a, oh shit, dip kind of way. But the complex part of it becomes, it doesn't feel like she really learns a lesson here. The Typhoid Mary story, she showcased the value of protecting another person. I don't know that you're showcasing to me the value of getting really mad at your employer. Yeah, and it's funny because vengeance feels really important for Electra. Not even so much against Fisk, a lot more against the hand, but vengeance is part of what Electra is wrestling with. It's not necessarily her mission or a part of what she's trying to do, but she has been wronged and she has been hurt and she's been taken advantage of. And those types of things, there's an instinct to avenge. So there's a very real way in which these characters do have something to say to each other and it's almost like all the pieces are sitting there but nobody assembles them into the very obvious piece that they're meant to make as a whole. That's a really excellent way to look at it and one that I do very much agree with. There is a a, a so close but just not finishing the trick to it that would I think positively transform the work in a way that would bring a little bit more conclusive realism to why I needed this story and not just needed this story but a thing that our team has questioned on multiple occasions is why these stories in these constructions together in these ways sometimes it just feels like the stories would do better in other volumes put together differently sharing different space together this as the lead story in what is the final black white and blood of this volume for Electra. I mean they could always come back and do more if they really wanted but we have to assume that this is the final one for now. This being the lead story and having it really feel like it could have just as easily with three or four panel changes functioned as a ghostwriter story at least under the conditions that these black white and bloods have set for the amount of the protagonist that needs to be involved for it to be their story. I don't know it just the construction felt odd as well. This maybe would have felt a little bit more at home in the second issue and then the second story would have meant a lot more in the fourth one you know like the the Typhoid Mary story if it was in the last one and then Electra 100 came it would have felt really exciting but I don't know I think maybe this one does suffer a little bit from the production placement you also could have done this as the middle story in the third issue because that's Typhoid Mary and Natasha Romanov as bookends to a middle story which is just kind of like an Electra think piece so if you've done all three Ghost Rider Typhoid Mary and Black Widow then you have like the team up issue which is a little ham-fisted but like at least there's a theme I like the variety issue to issue but it at sometimes borders on like just whatever we could schedule and slot it and I would happily have waited for these a little longer in order to have them curated in a way that was able to support each story or give it something to work with because there is no part of it that is like what a waste I wish this wasn't the case burn it but there are places where I could stand to see maybe a little bit a little bit more attention paid to the packaging of some of these boutique items. Marvel has done a really good job of keeping the boutique pricing down. I'm not paying $5.99 and $6.99 and $7.99 for these Black, White, and Blood specials. But, you know, especially when the dubious nature of their continuity is constantly called into question, I could stand for just a little bit more maybe thought about how they read together. And maybe they do put a lot of thought in how they read this together and we're just experiencing it from a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. 
there is no question for me that like, man, as a kid who my whole world as a little kid was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Like a lot of kids my age, you know, in my mid thirties now, that was a really formative show for back then. And it's not necessarily a fandom that I have stayed dramatically emotionally involved with or connected with the way I have with a number of my other childhood ideas. But when I pretty much transitioned off of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I transitioned directly to Daredevil, like seriously, like seven or eight, my dad started giving me Daredevil comics. So like I could have never realized at the time that I was so completely fulfilling Kevin Eastman's dreams for his life's work. I don't know how many people realize this, but when Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird back in November of 83 started work on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it was a tribute to Daredevil by Frank Miller. They are empowered by the same liquid that blinds Daredevil. They face the Foot Clan instead of the Hand Ninjas. They are taught by a man named Splinter instead of a man named Stick. It is really, really an incredible beautiful thing that they are so balanced and genuinely uh, tribute to another. It was just... (sighs) Anyway, I am so positive on Kevin Eastman getting to take a moment and pay tribute to one of the most formative things in my life that ultimately became like the most formative thing in my childhood that would later help me find the most formative thing in my life. So it's just a dream come true. Like I, I wish I wasn't fanboy so hard but it's a super dream come true anybody who's looking to know a little bit more about this you can get it from kevin eastman's own mouth in a terrific article published on this week back in january 8th 2015 uh just look it up it's the fascinating origin story of the teenage mutant ninja turtles and it's hard for me not to gush you know tk did you have any relationship with the teenage mutant ninja turtles and whether or not you did were you aware of the connective tissue between daredevil and the turtles i did i was a huge Ninja Turtles kid. I have some adorable pictures of me dressed as a Ninja Turtle for Halloween like three years in a row. I did know about the connection. Shockingly, just like it wasn't until you and I were talking about it prepping for this issue that it really clicked for me like what a relevant moment it was. It was one of those things where I was just like, oh, cool. Like he got to do a little Electra. And it's funny because Electra is kind of one of the things that doesn't translate over between the two as obviously and readily. I imagine that there could probably be a number of things from Electra being in Daredevil that influenced the Ninja Turtles, but there's not like one person who is the Electra of Ninja Turtles, unless I'm crazily mistaken. No, I mean, Karen Page is much closer to April O'Neil. Right, right. Yeah, I very much agree with you. I would even say there's some parallels between Casey Jones and Punisher more yeah. readily than there are between Casey Jones and Electra. So it's neat that of all the things to put him on, it's one of those things that says to you, like, I'm not just in this for a character or for a certain property. I love the story as a whole. And even if I am not referencing one of my iconic characters that were inspired by this property, I love the property so much that I can write about characters that you don't necessarily associate with my project. And still, I have the same grasp of all the things that are important and beautiful about this character. I genuinely have next to no criticisms of this story at all, save for perhaps that first page giant forehead boob kind of freaks me out. She looks a little bit like a red feminine Mars Attacks alien. But other than that, I really think every, and that's even me just being kind of silly. I think the art on this story is so beautiful. 
It really feels like a Miller comic. At the same time, it truly feels like an Eastman comic. It is perhaps one of the most stylized stories to come out of Marvel in years. Yeah, the thing that I kept returning to, and I mean, this is this has always been the case, but how much it always resembles lithography. Yeah, okay. I really get that. The way the rendering of the blacks and the whites and the grays and the grayscaling and the depth of color variation, some of the lightness of the crosshatching, I think perhaps there is no better example of the deftness of the art team's work in this story where, you know, please don't get me wrong. The dialogue is beautiful. The dialogue is well thought. It is clever. It's dialogue. And it's unimportant compared to the incredible art this story tells. Like, if every box of dialogue was just her saying the letter I, dot, 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 it would not change anything about this story. Truly, the art is so startling at times because of the places that the art team chooses to accentuate the depth of the black in her costume versus the brightness of the negative space of the white of her costume. Contrast that with that little box in the lower right corner and the iconography of the classic rectangular earrings and nothing and none of that even compares to the interlocked size. Yeah, that is truly a beautiful moment. And the fact that there's one that is open-ended and not framing anything. Exactly, because there's seven panels on this page. There's the initial panel in the upper left corner. There's its bold upper right corner counterpart. And of course, the striking lower left, you know, moment of fear. But then when you look at the blocking in the smaller panels inside the Psy interlock and you compare it to and led me into this dark land. I mean, first of all, I guess and led me into his dark land is like proof that the dialogue does matter because that transitions us into the only open segment of the Psy interlock, which is a fluid sense of black directly into what we could consider the dark Electra's, you know, mind, her open, her open space of like, yeah, this is just one of those stories where the art is without hesitation. I, I don't, I've put fire escapes in every comic I've ever written. Actually, that's a thing. Every comic book I've ever written, there's a fire escape somewhere. And I have no idea what to say about this fire escape sequence. I am, and the, oh my God, the page bleed with the size, like the panel border being size and the blood going out of it. This is just some of the best work I've ever seen from Marvel. Just, just truly. It's gorgeous. Again, this is one that what you take away is a richer understanding of Electra as a character. And one of the things that really struck for me, and I, I think I really tied it all together when you said Dark Electra. One Electra is in a black costume, but neither of these Electras is, you know, this is not good Electra versus evil Electra, and then they come together and harmonize, and there's a third one that is balance, because that's not how Electra is. I think, I'm not going to get into it because it would be a much longer conversation, but I think the the aspects of what's in the Electra in the white costume versus the Electra in the black costume can't be translated into positives and negatives. They're parts of her, they're sides of her, they're pieces of her life that she's constantly reckoning with. But one of the things that's so beautiful about her and one of the things that I really I crystallized for me in this is the fact that none of it is positive or negative. It is all Electra, and she can do whatever she wants with the pieces of herself. And at her best, she does use them to affect positive change in the world, but she is a person who struggles and she is a person with darkness. And I will be thinking about what red Electra means versus white and black Electra for quite a long time to come as I see her throughout this next run of Daredevil, even in things like Savage Avengers. This is a character that just has so much going 
going for her. And this story really, I think, encapsulates all that that means. I, I wish I had more to add because it covers so much in what you just said. So I'm going to say that explicitly states my feelings on the topic. And I think that's even part of why I am able to focus so much on the art here. If you really want to talk about Electra in terms of the source material that built her character narrative, there's that triple omnibus collection, Miller's Daredevil, Daredevil, Omnibus Companion, and The Electra by Miller and Sienkiewicz. And those three volumes really represent the sum total of classic Electra. Outside of that, there's not a whole lot of really excellent, complete printed edition stuff. And it's in these last few years that we're really seeing this wealth of material. So if you've read all of that, and I feel like this is a, the, the perfect slice of it. This is like that exact, yeah, this is everything you need to know about Electra in like a perfect download. And at the same time, I find myself stricken by the use of vertical landscape with the idea of the skyscraper in the left side panel and the ways in which it's given a physicality that sort of challenges the notion of a standard skyscraper. There's elements of all sorts of, in, you know, sort of worldwide architecture in these pages, really translating the world jet setter speed that Electra operates at both as a socialite and as an assassin. And then we get that masterful page of the buildings rising into the sky and the idea of the red moon over the sky and what that truly means for birth and the fact that this red Electra comes from liquid under a red sky. There is so much to be said for the ways in which Electra is the city that is her playground. She is this multitude of women. And I am challenged by the what looks to be on a very surface level, perhaps just the other women, like you could read it as they've exploded or their heads came off, like that they, they were killed somehow, but they actually look to be petals moving into the sky. And I'm just moved. Like I'm just legitimately moved. Yeah, I had the same reaction. To me, I interpreted them as petals. You know, their heads dissolve into flowers that float into the sky because these are not the true Electra. The true Electra is born out of blood, but she's whole. She has these two sides of herself that are at war. And again, they're not good and evil. They're much more complicated than that. But Electra is whole when she embraces the fact that who she is in this moment is somebody that is born out of blood, but is somebody that can still be whole and can kill the warring sides of herself in a way that is beautiful, not angry. And yet at the same time, it's it's still violent. It is still death. She lives in violence and she, at her best, can embrace that and find some measure of strength in it. And I think that's what we're seeing in Daredevil, Zadarsky's Daredevil. I think that's what we're seeing in both her and Matt right now. They Violence is a part of what they do and that is not easy. That is problematic and you do get it wrong. But there is a way to affect change for these people, accepting that violence is part of what they do. And a lot of it is about the internal struggle and the making oneself whole. This, given that this is like six pages, the fact that this can encapsulate something that Zdarsky's still exploring in 50 plus issues of Daredevil and into this next book, that it, that's special. To be able to put all that into such a simple story is a talent and it is a gift to readers. It's definitely the piece that I am so glad that Electra Black, White, and Blood is ending on. That's the note to go out on. That's the way you say goodbye. I think, you know, with a definitive story like this, it actually does sort of break my heart then that the last page is the ad for 
Devil's Reign Omega with all of this bright, luscious color. And by no means is it an insult to the work the art team did on this story, but it certainly feels like, oh, but look at this bright thing. And that there is a sense of like, uh, but that's me just sort of frustrated at the nature of the universe being an uncontrollable force. There is really nothing that can be done about you advertise the next book. So it's not like I'm coming for production on that regard. It's just such an incredible stark image to end on for the then very sheen colors of the Devil's Reign Omega Cup. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's not a ton you can do about it. In a perfect world, you might have hoped for like one unique advertisement that was drawn to complement the book that it was coming out of. That's a big ask, a lot of money, a lot of time, obviously not something that's going to happen. We do need to advertise the next one because if you did fall in love with this, you need to know that Electra is definitely still around and you should be following her. But yeah, sometimes that can be a little jarring when you just had this moment with Electra, this cathartic, beautiful moment to then like, you know, it's like in a television show when they hit the climax and then they cut to commercial and it's like Subway and your heart just doesn't really know what to do. Yeah, that's really how it feels. This is most certainly letting me know that Quiznos <laughs> is expanding back into my local area. So man, I wish they would. So all said and done, this Electra Black, White and Blood experiment has been really rewarding, at times a little disappointing, only in as far as the publication schedule no one could have known. And you know, these boutique kind of events really benefit from having some tightness of production. Again, not a knock against anybody involved in this book. Nobody could help the slowdowns that we've been experiencing. But maybe that would have increased my enjoyment of the miniseries. I think it's one that'll read well in a coffee table edition or a treasury edition. And there's certainly stories that I am happy for. If there's a treasury edition of this that does not include the story from Electra 100, I will be kind of disappointed. I would agree. There's a lot that I would like to see from here for Electra. This does really feel like just the beginning. And I've just, these past few months, seeing such a focus on the character and knowing where we're going in Daredevil, the upcoming series, I just, I have so much hope that everybody else gets to follow and fall in love with this character the way that I have. Well, until we return to talk more Electra as well as everywhere else in the Marvel Universe, TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. As always, you guys can find me all over this show Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, MC2 Mondays with TK, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4 Premiere Fridays. You can also check out our exploits over on YouTube on the Hubs Plus Network, where we air partner shows to this, like The Billy Club, Mai and Tori Sheehan's examination of Daredevil, starting with his first stories back in 1964. Don't forget you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N-N until we return on Monday to talk more MC2. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Never go with Ghost Rider to a second location. Never go with Ghost Rider to a second location. Eh, poof. Yeah, buddy. And we'll see ya. (laughs) 